We'll be wrapping this up this morning, and we will be looking at a new series next week. Um, if you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. There's one in the pew in front of you. Uh, it is page 947. So um, go ahead and grab that and turn to Romans chapter 12. We'll actually be on 948, looking at verses 9 through 13. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Might seem sort of a strange question, but it's something that has been just sort of obsessively on my mind for the past, well, year or so. This, uh, this question, uh, what does God want from me? And I, I feel like maybe that's not something I should be asking as a minister, like I should already have that figured out, but somehow I don't. Um, what does God want from me? What is it? Uh... So my heart of hearts is that I want to be a good Christian. Uh, the, the very deepest place of me is I want, to be, I want to be faithful to God. I want to be faithful to his word. I want to keep the covenant that has been made in Jesus uh, and to the church so that the church and God might become one. And, uh, and so the question that's just been on my mind over and over again, because, you know, everybody says things like follow Jesus or everybody says, uh, you know, love God. We, we say these kinds of things, but what does it actually look like? What do I actually have to do? What am I actually supposed to be up to in order to, to, to follow Jesus? And this question actually is a fancy field of study. If you went into Amazon.com and you looked at spiritual formation, this is what these books are, spiritual formation. And the idea then is that Jesus says in John chapter 3 is that we must be born again. And he says specifically then born of the Spirit. And Paul says in Romans 8 as we've been going through the series, Paul says that we're supposed to be born of the Spirit as well, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and dwelt with the Spirit. That there is a, 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 a foundational, complete transformation that is happening within and without the believer. And so what happens then after that? And, and so I, I, I've been wrestling with it. I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the past year, almost all of my sermons have had this theme built into them this question, what am I supposed to do? It's kind of like those headaches that you can't like get away from. You ever had one of those? Like it just sits in your brain and you can't get rid of it. And this runs into our next series in a pretty obvious way. First we explored the actual work of the Christian because even as I asked the question, what am I supposed to do to follow God or what am I supposed to do to, to, to make God happy with me or to please God, immediately we're in danger of betraying all the foundational legwork that Paul has, has been laboring over in chapter 1 through chapter 8 in which he says, you are what God wants. Like you, you already are exactly what God wants. And in Jesus, he has made it possible for you to come near to him because Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that, that laid between you and God, which is that fancy word that you find in the Bible, justified. That we are justified before God, as, as Matt was talking. All of those things that I could count this week that, that I've done wrong, all of that has been made right and washed away. And I am now justified before God. And so I am already what God wants. Jesus uses the metaphor of children. Remember this? If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. And this drives me to think of Emery because it often, everything drives me to think of Emery. I like the kid. What can I say? Um, if I think about what I want out of Emery, I just want her to let me be daddy. Like, that, that's it. Like, you know, I mean, we have these little things I expect her to do as a member of the household, but in terms of what I want her to be, I just want her to, to be my daughter. 
You know, the Bible says again and again, you are the children of God. And yet I find Christians all of the time resisting that truth and trying to say, well, what do I have to do to make God happy? And God is already really, really ecstatic with you, which is why he sent his son to to die for you so that he could have you as his saint, have you as his child, have you as somebody who would dwell in his house forever and ever. And that's just such an incredible piece of good news. Such an incredible piece of good news. And what it takes, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, and we looked at this, then is not effort on my part, but a renewing of the way that I see the world. That I would then begin to see the world through the eyes and through the mind of Christ. And, and this would evoke the way that I live my life then is going to begin to change. If we recognize our position as children and members of the house, then the way that I live changes. And he takes us deeper in verses 3 through 8, and we talked about this last week, and describing our interrelatedness, that you are a member now of a household. In fact, he goes deeper and says, you are a member of a body. You are members of one another. And I made the strange analogy of saying Siamese twins, where we share each other's organs. We're bonded together in a way in which I cannot be a good Christian. Without Eric Dush. I cannot be a good Christian without Paul. I can't be a good Christian without Gwen. I can't be a good Christian without all of you. I can't do this. I can't grow into maturity unless you are a part of the body that I'm a part of because you have an integral gifting. You have something that God has given you that he has given no one else. And if you don't have it and you're not here, if Kristen doesn't make it, then I can't be a complete and mature Christian because she is going to sharpen me and force me to grow in a way that I can't do on my own. So we need one another. Deeply, completely, we need one another. And this is um, one of the things we talked about last week. And as we gave the opportunities for the renewing of our mind, our different services that are focused on that idea of, of how is it that we are going to begin to think differently. And we do that as we have conversation and as we have study and as we have um, prayer together and as we read scripture. And we wrestle with how to live life um, because life is rough. Yes? And so we need help. And these are opportunities for that. We also gave the opportunity last week, and, and, I, and this is in your bulletin again this week, uh, if you didn't have a chance to, to fill in a spot or write something on the back of your unique gifting, we're actually going to be collecting these. Ben is way back there, and he's going to be collecting them at the end of service so you can drop them off with him. But this is an opportunity for you to be that function, for you to function in the body according to your giftedness. Get out there and stretch the grace that God has given you and and help the body grow into maturity. So again, um, fill those out if you get a chance. Uh, write your own unique gift, something maybe that's not on there, something that I, I, I'm not even familiar with. Uh, put it in there so that we can all be practicing this. And again, this is about our embracing the grace that God has given us, not us working to please him. He's already pleased with us, but, but if we understand our, our childness, our belonging to him, then we would change our lives. And so we begin uh, looking today, this morning, at verses 9 through 13. Did I put that up? Nine, yep, 9 through 13 um, in Romans chapter 12, in, in which Paul begins to sort of lay out what it would look like. The actual morality or the ethics or the Christian practices. What kind of things would a Christian be up to then if he's, his or her mind was renewed and he was, or her, would, you know, um, brought into the body of Christ? How then would we live our lives? Verse 9, the first line. 
Let love be genuine. Now, verses 9 through 13 in Greek are all one long sentence. Like there's, no, there's no break. There's only one break, and it's that first line there. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine, and then abhor what is evil. You see that there? Um, that is all one sentence all the way down to the end of 13, which says, seek to show hospitality, which tells us something important. This line, let love be genuine, stands as kind of a summary statement, an overarching statement. If you're going to belong to Christ, if you're going to renew your mind, if you're going to be an integral part of the body and operating according to the giftedness that God has given you, then you must first let your love be genuine. What does that mean? Let your love be genuine. It's so important, I think, for us to define terms. And I find this more and more as I yell at the radio um, in the news We have to define terms because we have people, and, and let's, use the, let's just be honest about the current, current hot topic that everybody feels like talking about, homosexual marriage. Um, you have people who say, let love be genuine means that uh, we should accept people for who they are, and we should support them, and we should love them. That means uh, uh, be a part of and endorse the sorts of lives that they feel or the way they feel or the way they, way they want to live. We have other people over here who say, well, love be genuine. If the Bible says they're going to go to hell, then you better shout at their doorstep that they're going to hell and, 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 you know, maybe have some signs out as well because that's genuine love. You're warning them, right? You have these kind of extreme voices, and maybe that's a little bit of a, maybe they're both a little bit of a characterization, but either way, you get the point. The question is then, what is love? Because everybody is attaching their life to what love is. Their meaning to what love is. And it brings me to thinking about Jesus. Because everybody invokes Jesus. You ever notice that? Like it doesn't matter what you are. Everyone invokes Jesus. And Jesus said this. And that's big and long. But uh, hopefully you can follow along there. Jesus has a situation. And you've, you've heard this before. The lawyer comes up to him and he says, I want to ask you a question. It's going to test you, right? It's going to test Jesus. He's kind of hoping to catch him. Um, and he says, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We've seen this before, right? This is a familiar verse. So my question begins with this then. How do I love God? What? Loving others? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. This is the great commandment. And the others like it, so it's similar to it. By loving others, what would that look like? You, you, I mean, you, you ventured, I'm sorry. You, oh, way to comfort, Paul. <laughs> it's not a bad answer. I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm, like, I'm not being critical here. I'm, just, I'm asking, what, how do we spend time with people? I, I, you know, I, the thing I notice about this text is it doesn't say. That, that's what I notice. Like, the first thing that I notice, and this is sort of like the Bible critical thinker that, like, I am. It doesn't say. It says, love God, okay, with my whole body. Like, that's, that's the I, body, mind. So, like, my whole being, I'm to love God. But it doesn't tell me how. It just says, do it. And then it says, you should love your neighbor. Well, what does that mean? How do I do that? It doesn't say, right? It doesn't say how I'm to love my neighbor. And, and I want to make that point. 
Because Jesus is making a huge assumption here. And what is his assumption? What? That we know how, right? Exactly. His assumption is verse 40. His assumption is that you know the law and the prophets. He's saying if, 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 all of the, if I'm going to sum up all of the law and the prophets, if I took Genesis, Leviticus, all the, way through, all the way through Malachi, if I took it all together and I was going to summarize it for you, how would I do it? I would say love God and love people. And that's a great summary except for if you don't know the law and the prophets, you don't know the specifics of how to love God or how to love people. And so when people invoke this, we then begin to input, which is kind of why I'm the pick on you guys, and you know I love you so much. We, t- we, we, we take these words love and we begin to input our own things, spend time with people. Now that might be true. I think that's probably a very good answer. But where does that come from? It's got to come from Scripture. This is, what Paul, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you want to love and you want to love God, you want to love others, this is a summary, but you have to go back to the Old Testament, which is why I think it's so important that we read the Old Testament, we understand the Old Testament. And if we bring that into uh, today, the problem that I see people saying is, what I hear people saying is that what Jesus means is that love trumps law, which is not what he's saying. He is saying the law is how you love So if I want to know how to love people, then I want to know how to love God, then I need to revert back to the Old Testament because Jesus already assumes you know this thing. What we find today is that Christians, and of course, especially non-Christians, have no knowledge whatsoever of what the law says. So we need to be careful when invoking these things. Paul does the same thing. He says this in this verse. He says, let love be genuine. Well, immediately I can think of 50 things to say about that, but I'm always imputing it. I am bringing it to the text rather than letting the text speak to me. And that is a very dangerous place to be. So if I said, let love be genuine, and that's a summary statement, it's important to read what comes next and what comes next in that verse. In, in your verse, in, in your Bible there. Hate what is evil. Abhor what is evil. Be disgusted by what is evil. Be revolted by what is evil. Let your stomach turn. Let your mouth fill with vomit. Feel disgusted. Hate it. Which is a very interesting thing, isn't it? That he begins by saying, if you want your love to be genuine, you better begin with by what you don't have any part of. And it doesn't mean just don't like it or don't participate in it or, you know, turn a blind eye to it. He means feel intense hatred for it. I think the Bible should say what the Bible says. We should just sort of let it be. And that is exactly what it says here. And he's not being overly creative. He says, uh, the scriptures say in the Old Testament, Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Psalm 101.3 then says David, echoing this, this, this notion, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. I shall not cling to it. I was reading on the plane back from Denver this week. I was reading through uh, the Old Testament. I was reading through the law. And I was just stunned by how often in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you hear the phrase, uh, uh, you hear the, the notion to uh, purge the evil from your midst. 
that you are a holy people called by a holy God who has made you holy, we would say, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what should you do? You should purge the evil from your midst. And that refers to that which lies within us, um, which will be our next series coming up um, beginning in, through October, but also purging the evil in terms of people even. And this is kind of what's scandalous about the New Testament, because Paul assumes that there are people in the church who are going to reject sound teaching, they're going to reject doctrine, they're going to continue to participate in things they know that are wrong, and the church is called to discipline its body. It's called to watch out. If we could see the way that God sees, and this, is, this whole series has been built on this idea that we need to begin to see the world God sees it. If we could see the way that sexual sin degrades human beings, if we could see the way that pornography, the Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, divorce, homosexual marriage, all this, all this stuff that we see going on so rampantly um, throughout, if we could see the way that God sees it as degradation of the integrity of the human being, that you are made in the image of God. You are holy. You are to be washed clean of the blood of Jesus because he want, God wants you to live in his house. What unholy thing would you bring into the house of God? You wouldn't bring anything like that in. If we could see the way that poverty brings about hopelessness and desperation and crime, if we could see the way that wealth and riches create self-assuredness, and greed, and faithlessness, if we could see the way that the things that we cling to, the things that we hold to here in this world that the scriptures say again and again are evil, if we could see the way that it it denigrates us, we would abhor it, we would hate it, we would want nothing to do with it. Again, bringing it back to, I haven't seen Emery or Laura for about four days now, so it's, they're on my mind, but if, if Emery could see herself the way daddy sees her, she wouldn't pay any attention to the words the bullies say. She wouldn't pay any attention to the, the body image insanity of the billboards as we drive down the road. She wouldn't wind up in a car at night with a boy because we know what happens thereafter. She wouldn't ever degrade herself. She would abhor evil and she would cling to what is good because to me, she is pristine. She is perfect. And God sees each and every one of us the same way. So if our love is to be genuine, both to God and to one another, it has to stay with this. If we begin to renew our eyes so that we could see what is evil, and we would hate it. We would despise it. Not people. Notice that. It's not people we despise. It's evil. And we would hold fast. We would cling. We would, we would latch on like a baby to a mama, right? And latch on to what is good. We'd hold on to it with all that we are. We would sing with David, in Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. It is like living water. It leads me along paths of righteousness. It gives me a vision for the world that God has. He says in verse 10 then, bringing it uh, out of the theoretical and into the right here, right now, relational. Verse 10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing, uh, in showing honor. 
such an interesting line, and it has so much connection with what we've been talking about, especially last week where he says, don't think too highly of yourself because we're individually members of one another. Each one has its gift, has been given through grace, and so we ought to exercise our gifts apportioned to that grace. And so uh, we should love one another. In fact, in, in verse 10, it's actually two love verbs. The first one is filioque, which is to brotherly love, to have brotherly love or sisterly love, family affection to one another. So have family affection, and then show more love. Love one another. And you have both of those at work in this one sentence, that we are to love one another. We are members of one another. And I want you to notice how often Paul talks about this, and I hope that you have, um, through my preaching, because I try to bring it out as often as possible, Paul always talks about our relationship to one another. One of my pet peeves of pet peeves, like the highest of order of pet peeves is this. When I talk to people and they say, well, yeah, I love Jesus and I got a great relationship. My personal relationship with God is, is, is awesome. Yeah, but I don't go to church anywhere. What? Like, how could you, first of all, how can you have a personal relationship with re, without reading the scriptures? And how can you read the scriptures without recognizing that you don't have Jesus without the church? You don't have the church without Jesus. Obviously, we can back that up. But today we need to hear this. You don't have Jesus without the church. You do not grow into maturity without the sharpening of the entire body working together. You cannot be just you and Jesus dancing down the aisles. What's it say here? Love one another. Be connected to the body. You are individually members of one another. And so if we're individually members of one another and we're going to live as family, we are going to have disputes. Yes? We're going to... Paul, you were a little too fast on that. (laughs) We're going to have arguments. We're going to have strong personalities. Each one of you is gifted in your own way and your focus is going to be on your gift, your niche, your spot. Fantastic. I love it. But sometimes you got to realize the other organs need to work too, right? And so we're, we're going to be working with this, and God is working with this as well so that we could grow together, as he says in Ephesians chapter 4, into the fullness of Christ, which goes back to my very original thought to say, I want to grow into the fullness of Jesus. I want people to look at me next year and say, man, that guy shines like the sun. Like, I... I, just, I run into him and I, I feel like holiness. It's like, it's like Moses, you know, like this shining face. Like I, I want that kind of intense relationship with God, but I know that I can never get there if I don't love you. If I don't love you, each and every one of you, according to the gifting that God has given you. And I love this line here. And if you, if you underline in your Bible, if you're using a pew lot Bible, underline it there too, because it's great. Outdo one another in showing honor. To me, this sounds like a game. Have you ever been a part of a conversation where people are like one-upping each other? Like, you know, my, grand, my grandkids, uh, they, they won this award. Oh yeah, well my grandkids, you know, I've heard you all do this, so don't, right? Or, you know, I, well, I, you know, I got this promotion. My, well, let me tell you about the promotion. I, like we have these, we're, we're constantly trying to be the center of attention. We're trying to be uh, better than we are. We're trying to be the one that everyone looks up to. And, and this is a game that the world plays. This is the power game. And I know it doesn't matter what, I was at Best Buy. Like, like I couldn't get a job anywhere. I like 300 applications looking for a job and Best Buy calls me back. Like, which tells me something about the job, <laughs> right? 
And there's power struggles. Like, we're all working like minimum wage, like 20 hours a week, part-time. And people are struggling over who's in charge of like this, you know, this or that. Like, we, we're constantly in this game of one-upmanship. And Paul says, I want to invert that. Because in the church, something new is at work. In the church, there is a new creation. Something new is happening in which no longer are the people who seem like they deserve the most honor. And especially, 1 Corinthians 12, go back and read this. Those who, who, who everyone else would not give honor to, we show more honor to. We put the people who don't deserve to be in front up front. Because we aren't looking to beauty. We aren't looking to power. We aren't looking to wealth. We're not even looking to reputation. We're looking to people who are passionate for the kingdom of God. And so he says, instead of trying to outdo one another and, 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 and uh, being more honorable or more honored, instead, and this follows the teaching of Jesus, where does Jesus say to sit when you go to the feast? The back of the room, right? To take the place of dishonor. Because if you deserve honor, somebody will move you forward. Paul says here, instead of trying to outdo one another in receiving honor, outdo one another in showing honor. So if you think of the grace, the love, the honor maybe that somebody here has given you, your task now is to think, how can I outdo them? Like, they were really nice to me. The person was really nice to me. How can I be nicer? You guys would be a strange group of people if that was the way that we lived our lives. Like, that was the way that we lived our lives. And, and, and that brings, I think, to the, to the question of then, you know, how does that look and what does that look like? And I think Paul gives Timothy some really great instruction. You can maybe jot this down as a side note. First Timothy 5, verses um, 1 through 3 says this. And he's speaking to Timothy, who is a leader in a church, um, his protege, a man who receives or should receive, you would think in most circumstances, great honor. I mean, he's the, he's the sort of rock star. He says, uh, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. When thinking about how he ought to interact with the church, how he ought to interact with those who he is charged to shepherd, we would even say maybe some authority over, he is always told, outdo with honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Listen, if we're going to love each other, and we're going to revel in the grace that God has revealed, the grace that God has, has poured out, with a, out onto us, we must begin by first recognizing the grace of God in each other's lives. Recognize the grace of God in the other people and sink deep into this practical teaching. Outdo one another in showing honor. And um, if this is your first Sunday here, I really want to welcome you. Uh, and I want to say that next Sunday somebody's going to be rude to you. Just because that's the way people are. Like, I just want to warn you up front. I, I've been here for a little while, and I know most of these people, and they are not perfect. Somebody is going to put their foot in their mouth. Somebody's going to sit in your seat. Um, somebody's going to do something. And so it's really easy to, to, like, put a finger in the eye of the church because we're really imperfect people. And, and, I, and I recognize that some people have really been hurt by the church, and really been wounded by other Christians. And I, and I want to say that I know that happens. And what is the solution uh, to that issue that Paul gives us here? What is the solution when somebody uh, doesn't show you the honor maybe that you deserve? Uh, the wonderful thing here is that it's then really, really easy to outdo them, isn't it? Like, 
somebody is rude to you, it's so easy. Like, you just have to smile at them, and you've already done your job. Well done. And so, so when it comes to the moment of frustration, because we're going to get frustrated with, if we're family, we're going to get frustrated with one another. When it comes to that moment, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else, take a smile. Outdo one another in showing honor and recognize that we are beginning to live out Scripture. And that's actually really good news. It's really good news. What tells me when people get their feathers ruffled, especially when I get my feathers ruffled, and it's not that hard. <laughs> Just honestly, it's not that hard. Um, I almost always recognize that what's really bothered is my pride. Like, e- e- when somebody offends me, when somebody offends me, it's because I'm, I'm prideful, and you don't dare talk to me like that. Um, and that's not a place that Jesus seems to come to. Uh, people seem to throw things in Jesus' face all the time, and he doesn't seem overly bothered by it. And that's one of the things I think is incredible, is he's arguing with, with all of these religious leaders who are coming at him. He's having all of these conflicts and confrontations, and he's like really speaking out, and they're speaking back to him. Like he knows they're, they're threatening to kill him, and he seems like sort of like nonchalant about the whole thing. Well, okay, I'm going over here now. Like it just, because, because Jesus is the picture of humility. He is the picture of the man who is seeking first the kingdom of God. And in seeking first the kingdom of God, everything else sort of becomes meaningless. Everything else becomes a passe. Everything else is, is, is falling away toward this one singular goal to obey the will of God, to seek the kingdom first. Paul um, hits at this even deeper in verse 13, so I'm going to kind of jump down there. In verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints. And we might think of James, in which James talks about, you know, if you see your brother or sister in need, and you say to them, listen, you don't have clothes, or you don't have food, or you have no shelter whatsoever, and you say to this person, well, I know it's snowing outside, I hope you enjoy it. Right? That is not the idea here. Rather, we ought to then contribute to the needs of the saints, try to meet each other's needs. Now, we try as hard as we can not to be, you know, a burden to the church. We try as, I try as an individual as hard as I can not to be sort of a drain. But if I'm in need, then I'm not ashamed to seek out help because that's what we're here for, right? And so it's genuine need that we're pursuing, that we should meet one another. And I love this la- that last line, show hospitality, Seek to show hospitality. Now, we are very good at letting Applebee's show hospitality um, or Denny's or wherever your, your place of choice is. We are very good at that. In fact, we've got a whole industry, hospitality industry. We have outsourced hospitality. And yet Paul says, don't outsource hospitality. He says, seek to show hospitality. And you cannot seek to show hospitality until you open the door of your house. Insert here a plug for small church. Please, if you have not signed up for a small church, please do so. Um, uh, the boss, myself, uh, Paul, I know, is in need of some people. Um, and Jack and Lisa, I don't know where he is. He was here earlier. Uh, there he is, Jack. Um, and then the other Jack who is um, bouncing about the country this afternoon. Be a part of somebody's life. And the way that you do that is you come over to their house, and you've heard this before, so I won't belabor it. The next point, he says in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. 
And what's interesting to me about this is as the verse that we talked about earlier from Jesus, where Jesus says, love God, love others, uh, as the summary of the law and the prophets, Paul is doing the same thing. You notice that only in kind of in like a reverse order here. He begins with like, love one another with brotherly affection, which is the kind of love others bit. And then he goes on and says, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. This line is kind of very focused on serving God. So love others, love God. And, and I love this, this idea of zeal. Like, where is your love for the church today? Where is your love for God today? What is the test case for this love? What is the genuineness of this love? Do you seek to outdo or have you sought to outdo one another in honor today? That's your genuine love for the church. Have you sought to take care of the needs of the saints? Have you sought to show hospitality? That's your genuine love today. And secondly, have you fervently sought the Lord? How is your heart this morning according to God? Are you slothful? Are you getting lazy in your zeal for God? It says be fervent in spirit or in the spirit. This word fervent literally means be hot. Which immediately takes me to that great letter to the church of Laodicea in chapter 3 of Revelation where he says you're not really hot, you're not really cold, you're kind of like a loogie, like this like slimy, lukewarm thing in my mouth. And what do you do with those? You spit them out, right? You're like, ah, I don't know. In fact, Jesus, I, I, I love this that he says, I wish you would either like hate me or love me. Like even like, even just being cold, just saying, you know, I want nothing to do, do with you is better than a loogie. Yes. Yes, and so what, what is being said here then is, is he's saying the same thing. Paul is saying the exact same thing that Jesus is saying here. He's saying being hot in the Spirit. Be full of zeal. Have the zeal of Phineas. Have the passion of Isaiah. Have the fire in your bones that Jeremiah had. Have the kind of zeal and passion and power for God that makes you want to go out and serve the Lord. What's interesting about that word too in in, in, in Greek is that it's a, it's a, a, it's a gerund, it's, it's an I-N-G, so it's serving the Lord. It's not just like, serve the Lord this morning from 10 to 11, and you have done your work. Go home and be happy. No, it is serving the Lord. It's not that you have completed it in an hour, but every single moment, going back to 12 verse 1, you are a living sacrifice. You have been laid down on the altar, and you have said, God, take me. That song we sang earlier, I surrender. I surrender. And what happens when we surrender is that God takes, God empowers, God fills, God leads, God blesses, so that, as the other song that Laura was singing, I have been blessed so that I might be a blessing, that I might be poured out again. This is an incredible notion. And so as we think about... Um, as we think about all that God has done for us, as we think about this whole series, this whole section of Romans chapter 12 and this question of how do I love God and, and how do I love others, that test case lays firm in us. Are you outdoing one another and showing honor? Is your heart full of fire for the Lord? And both of those work in tandem. Both of those speak to one another. And both of those, as we are participating in both, begin to grow so that we might become the, the brightness of God. So we might become the city on the hill. There's this great line um, that I've been sort of dancing around and avoiding because I feel like it's its own sermon. And I've already kept you here for a half an hour and I don't want to keep you that much longer. Verse 12 
rejoice in hope. Because haven't we found great hope over the past few weeks? We've talked about what Jesus has done, that he is justified, that he's glorified, that he is blessed, that he is empowered, that he is filled with the Spirit. That we should be patient in tribulation because, man, life is rough. And all of the gifts and all of the grace and all the things that we've talked about over, over the past few weeks uh, in, in no way diminish the difficulty that you might be facing today. The difficulty that we find in life itself. And the Bible never minces words about difficulty. But it says be patient. Because the hope that we just talked about will be fulfilled. The hope that we just clung to, the hope that we're rejoicing in, will come to its fullness. So even in the sense of tribulation, even in the sense of dire straits, even in the hardest times, I can look back and see how God has brought me through every single trial and know that whatever comes next, God will see me through that as well. And even if it means at the end my life is laid down in the altar and I say with Paul in a prison somewhere chained to a wall that I am being poured out as a drink offering, I still know that I shall receive the crown of life that is given to all those who desire God, who love both the brotherhood and the Lord. So be patient in tribulation. And this last bit here, be constant in prayer. If there's one thing that Paul says again and again and again, going back to my very original thought, what do I need to do to be a Christian? The most scandalous, the most scandalous I think, thing that he says is to pray. Because often I think the thing that we think most is to do, right? Go do, go do something, go accomplish something, go be something, go, go work. And yet Paul says, what should you be constant in? You should be constant in your prayers, constantly giving up to God because God who has given everything has control of everything has both your past your present and your future and the palm of his hands says I can make anything happen if you would give it to me be constant in prayer rejoice in the spirit rejoice in hope 